This is Chapter 89 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We get away from it all this week with two books that celebrate the outdoors. The first, a coming-of-age story set in the North Carolina marshes. The second, an ode to having a cabin in the woods. Then, we'll learn how to deal with disaster. Delia Owens is no stranger to nature. She spent more than two decades living in remote Africa where she researched lions, elephants, hyenas, and other wildlife. The author of several nonfiction nature books, she makes her fictional debut with the richly detailed Where the Crawdads Sing. I recently got to talk to her about it. This is a story of a young girl who is abandoned at an early age in the wild coastal marsh of North Carolina. And she has to survive more or less on her own. She does befriend an old wharf keeper who helps her. But she's mostly on her own. And then, but when she, she said spunky and, uh, and she shows us that we can do so much more than we think we can. Then when she reaches adolescence, she reaches the point that she wants to be with other people. She wants to be loved and to be touched. So she starts seeking out companionship, and this leads to a very tender love story. And her her world seems to be getting better until the unthinkable happens, and it ends up, the story moves into a murder mystery and then a courtroom drama. It's really a story about why we behave as we do. That being said, I guess your time spent in Africa observing the wildlife there, that must have played a lot into how you approached writing this book. It did. It was everything. I spent 23 years in some of the most remote areas of Africa, so I knew all about isolation, and I saw how it affects a person. I also, from uh, observing the, the wildlife, I learned that that the pride of lions is made up only of females. The males come and go for breeding, but and the herd of elephants is made up only of females. We have a very, as humans, we have a very strong genetic propensity to belong in, in um, female groups. And in today's world, I mean, I came back from Africa after living in isolation. I would come back and talk to my girlfriends who lived in large cities, and they also felt isolated. We've moved away from having strong groups. We don't have that close community that we used to have. A lot of people, I think, are affected by isolation, and and that's what this book is about and how to deal with that. And another aspect to this book is the the North Carolina Coastal March, where, where it's set. And it really, you make it a living and breathing character of its own. What drew you to this particular setting? Several things. It was a, I chose the the wild marsh for poetic reasons and for practical reasons. I wanted this story to be very believable. So um, the the marsh in North Carolina has a temperate climate. Um, she had a shack. Kaya could go and collect mussels and and oysters. It was it, it was actually possible for her to survive there. So it was a, it was important for the environment that she was isolated within to be uh, temperate, but also for poetic reasons. The marsh is a light, a place of light with beautiful water uh, streaming through this tall grass and the 
big forest. But then now and then there there are very dark, true swampy areas, which are quieter and darker. And I've found, and I think most people find that sometime during life, most of us end up in a swamp. And um, and this story is very much about how to move from the darker areas back into the light. So you've lived in places of complete isolation. Are you as resourceful and maybe uh, witty as your main character, Kaya, is? <laughs> well, I, I, no, I wouldn't say I'm as witty, but um, I feel like that that's another point of the book is that Kaya shows us that we can all do more than we think we can. And, you know, um, there, there's a lot of, of me and Kaya. There is. I mean, my friends who read it say, oh, yeah, Kaya's you. And then, but then I think, yes, but there's a lot of Kaya in all of us. All of us feel isolation and rejection from one time or the other. All of us can do more than we think we can. And that's an important part of the story, and that's what Kaya shows us. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the way uh, certain mammals live in groups. Do you think that we as humans, we still have a lot that we can learn and maybe have to go back to our roots in a way? Yes, that is really the main point of this book. I wanted to write, I'm a wildlife scientist, I wanted to write a, a novel that would interest a lot of people and to point out how we can better understand ourselves if we go back and look at the environment we evolved within. Back on the savannah millions of years ago in Africa, we had to um, fight over resources. Uh, A mother had to fight for her offspring's uh, survival. She also sometimes had to abandon her offspring and then later reproduce again when you had better environmental conditions. There are a lot of things that we do, aggression, even murder, that are not acceptable in our society. But if we go back and see not just nature, nurture, not just saying, was this, is this instinct, but you go beyond that and say, why did this behavior pattern evolve? If we understand our roots, we can understand better why we behave the way we do. Did you find it difficult to transition from writing nonfiction into writing this work of fiction? No, I did not. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. It was such a freedom. I mean, nonfiction is really, truly like riding a horse in a corral with a tight fence around you. You know, you everything has to be factual, and this happened on this date and that date. And then when you write fiction, you can just take off on your horse and go any direction you want. And if you don't like what you've written, you can just delete it. I loved it. My imagination just uh, went wild. I just, I found, I loved it. It was so free. So I'm going to guess this isn't going to be the only not, uh, fictional book that you write then. <laughs> Well, I hope not. I'm working on another one. I'm I'm finding it difficult at the moment because I'm still on, on you know really enjoying um, the reception for this first book and 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 so I, I but I am working on the second one. And speaking of that, what was it like to have Reese Witherspoon pick your book for her book club? Well, I mean, you know, she picked my book is her September book of the month club and the next week I went on the bestseller list and have not come off of it so and I was on an airplane I just clicked over to you know off of airplane plane mode still you know sitting in my seat trying to deplane and my editor calls and says that she's chosen my book and I just started crying weeping right there in my seat 
I did a quick Google search before I got on the phone with you. And when you type in do crawdads, the first suggestion that comes up is sing. So <laughs> where do crawdads sing? I guess you're the person to ask. <laughs> Technically, they do not sing. But that is the whole point of the book. My mother <laughs> used to say that to me. Go out, way out yonder with the crawdads sing. It means going out and finding what nature has to tell us. And if you, they do not sing, but if you go out in the middle of nowhere, true wilderness, and stand there by yourself with no protection, just you and nature and the earth, you will hear the crawdads sing. That sounds like a great piece of life advice overall. (laughs) It has a lot to tell us. Nature has everything to tell us. All we have to do is listen. Well, Delia Owens, author of Where the Crawdads Sing, thank you so much for taking some time out to talk to us about this great book. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. It's it's been fun. Sometimes you just want a place to get away from it all. And that's just what author Stephen Sautner was looking for when he bought his fishing cabin in the Catskills a little more than a decade ago. But nature, as it turned out, had its own plans. He chronicled it all, the big and the small, in his book, A Cast in the Woods. We recently chatted about it. Let's start with the big things, like a 700-year flood that destroyed your property. And you could have let things be as they were, as had nature destroyed them. But you undertook a really large restoration project on your own. Why was that so important for you to do? The, the cabin sits on 14 acres of of beautiful unbroken hemlock woods and it has a quarter mile of a very small native trout stream and in that stream are native uh, brook trout and rainbow trout and I, I fish I mean that's why I went up there and after the flood the stream was completely trashed um, all of the shade trees that lined the stream and provided cover for the trout were virtually gone. All of the trout pools had filled in. The trout were gone. The insect life that the trout feed on were gone. And I stared at this thing, and it looked like a drainage ditch. And I thought to myself, well, I can either tell my, my, my grandkids someday that, hey, believe it or not, this ugly drainage ditch used to contain, you know, used to have native trout in it, or I can try to fix it. And so that's what I did. So I did a lot of research, I read a lot of books, and essentially, since it was just me and I couldn't hire heavy equipment to sort of move the stream back, I just began to plant trees. And um, over the course of two years, I planted about 700 trees or so, which, um, because after the flood, all that was left was sort of rock. Um, Planting each tree was like mining it was not like planting where you dig a hole and plop in a tree and you're done. It was, it was really hard work. So planting 700 trees um, took a long, long time. And then, again, because uh, there wasn't a lot of soil, the trees took a long time to grow back. But amazingly, they did grow back. And then um, about two years after that big flood, after I hadn't made a cast in that stream since, since the, uh, the uh, flood, I... Um, was sort of eyeballing this one pool that had begun to form over time. And I said, man, that looks like it could hold a trout. And so I took my fly rod 
that had been sitting on the porch for two years collecting dust and tied a little fly on and made a cast. And this little brook trout came up and ate it. And it was this amazing experience. I almost started to cry when I landed this trout. And But they came back. And so the lesson I learned was um, nature can come back if you give it a chance to do so. What really strikes me about that story, too, is that I think a lot of people think that they, singular as one person, can't really make a difference in the larger picture of conservationism and environmentalism. But that's really not the case, is it? No. I mean, if I let the stream just go, if I said, well, it'll come back on its own, what probably would have happened is there's this really horrible invasive uh, species called knotweed, and um, it's from Asia, and it grows all over the place, and it'll take over. And once that happens, the, the chance of other plants coming in um, are slim. So I did find knotweed um, because it's the kind of plant like when, when a flood comes in, knotweed goes, oh, here's my chance and wants to take over. But you have to jump on it right away or else all you'll have is like acres of this stuff. And it's like this 10 foot tall noxious weed. So um, I, I did work really hard to make sure no invasive species came back in, that all the stuff I planted was native and the kind of thing that should grow along a, a trout stream. And that took a lot of research and stuff. But so, yeah, um, nature will come back. But uh, if you help it, it'll come back faster. Another thing that you talk about in the book with, I guess, helping nature is this fight against fracking that happened in New York State. And that really was a big win for conservationists. It was. Um, So the ironic part about it was right after I had spent all this time planting these trees and right after the stream came back and the trout came back and things were really looking good, I learned about fracking. And I learned that um, my cabin was going to be about a three-minute walk from one of the first wells sited in, in New York State. There were six wells, like the first permit called for these six wells. And so I, my thought was, well, this doesn't sound good, but let me research it. And, you know, it wasn't on my land. It was a neighbor who had signed a lease. So I did. I researched it, and I learned all about water pollution, the toxins they use in the fracking fluids, um, air pollution, noise pollution, fragmentation of forests. And none of this was compatible to my 14 acres of woods and my little six-foot-wide trout stream. In fact, I felt that if fracking goes through, that'll be the end of it. I learned that a lot of the wildlife that live in my 14 acres are sensitive to to noise and fragmentation, meaning like punching well pads into woods and putting another road in here and there. And over time, these species will wink out. And these are like beautiful migratory warblers that come in from South America. Um, And, you know, part of the reason for me buying the place was not just the fish, but the wildlife. And I also learned how everything was sort of interconnected, that if you want a healthy trout stream, you need birds to drop seeds to grow more trees. And so everything is sort of intertwined. So I felt that fracking was just going to be, was going to make all these things sort of go away. So I became an activist. And again, that was not why I bought the place. I bought the place just so I could trout fish. But instead, I found myself going to public hearings and writing letters and going to lobby days in Albany and all these other things. And it was a long battle, several years. And then in 2014, 
New York State decided to ban fracking, and that was that was really a great day. I think it's kind of ironic that that we're talking about that fight uh, on a on a day where there's news that the the president plans to roll back major parts of a, a certain protection to allow for more drilling in the West. And it, 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 yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and it's it's just it's it really brings to light that you know I know I said it earlier, but really like if there's something that you really believe in, you should fight for it because it doesn't matter that you're one person. Yeah, and you can never t- turn your back on these things. You can never, I can never say, since I've gone through this battle, I can never say like, okay, fracking's done, we'll live happily ever after, the stream, the, the trout, the birds, the wildlife, everything is cool. You kind of always have to be paying attention. There's always looming threats. You, ho- you always have to advocate for things. If not, something will happen. Someone will come up with a great idea like, hey, let's uh, clear cut all the woods or whatever. Um, so again, and so what I learned was like when you own a piece of land, you're kind of the steward of it, and that means you're kind of always like trying to protect it. And I just thought, oh, I'll go up and I'll fish, and that'll be great, and I'll just fish, 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 because that's what I love to do. But it's really much more than that. You have to kind of always advocate, or there are threats sort of waiting to come in. So that's the lesson. So I guess you would say that the conservation battles, like owning a cabin, there's always maintenance to be done. There is always maintenance. Again, I bought it. I was like, oh, we'll buy this simple cabin because I don't want to do a lot of work on it. I just want to go fishing. And then it's between, you know, the floods and the fracking and my battles with mice and invasive species and all that stuff. It's sort of, that's, it's not just go up there and fish. But the, the, the thing is, all that stuff, I mean, you know, fighting against fracking was not all that fun. But, you know, watching the stream come back over time and now, as I walk along the stream and I see all these trees that I planted, and some of them are 25, 30 feet tall now, it's a really nice feeling. It's a, it's a, much more so than if like nothing ever happened, and you know I just fished and never really thought much about it. And and now when I see, you know, when when all the migratory birds come back in uh, in in the springtime, and I'm, I'm sort of feel like. Hey, fellas, you know, welcome back. And I've I, I kept this, the place nice for you and enjoy and nest and produce young and everything's cool. And I'm, I'm, I got your back. <laughs> so knowing what you know now, would you still buy that cabin in the woods? Absolutely, I would. Absolutely. My son has grown up there. He's 13 now. And we've got the place uh, before he, he was born. And he's grown up sloshing through that stream and catching frogs and crayfish and trout. And, you know, even though there were some hard times, I'd have it no other way. My final question for you is, what do you really hope readers take away from your book? I know it's a book about fishing and it's a book about a cabin, but it's it's really a lot more than that. I would like them to understand that um, how the sense of stewardship, that everyone should be a steward um, for wildlife uh and and wild lands um and i i think you know there's a, i think there's a fair amount of humor in the book of some of the bad things that have happened like i said with mice and that sort of thing and a dead salamander um, we didn't get and into the dead that salamander yes i i found a dead salamander in my water pipe by sucking on the water pipe and the salamander came shooting into my mouth that was not very fun but um but i i guess the sense that uh that everyone should be a steward, uh, that you kind of have to be a steward to protect wildlife and wild places. 
Well, the book is A Cast in the Woods. Stephen Saltner, thank you for uh, talking to me about your cabin that's just a cabin. Thank you very much. We all have problems. Some of them are big, some of them are small, but regardless of our struggles, we could all use some help learning to deal with life's lemons. That's the focus of the book, The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength When Disaster Strikes. Author Dr. Lori Nadell spoke with our Peter Haskell. Dr. Nadell, thanks for joining us. What prompted you to write the book? Well, uh, I actually had started writing the book uh, in 2012, uh, because I, I, as somebody who was reporting um, the marine environment for the New York Times Long Island section, I would noticed that there was definitely signs of sea level rising. And uh, as I started working on the book, which was going to kind of take a look at how people in other countries dealt with, um, you know, big environmental issues or uh, famine or war, um, a Hurricane Sandy struck my house in Long Beach, New York. And um, it uh, left three and a half feet of water, which was contaminated because the town's sewer pump broke during the storm surge. And as a result of my own experiences and working also as a trauma counselor in the community, uh, I decided it was time to write a book uh, to help people whose lives were suddenly impacted or going to be impacted by this increase in disasters. All right. So the book is The Five Gifts. Let's end the suspense. What are the five gifts? The five gifts are humility, patience, empathy, forgiveness, and growth. And I call them the unbearable gifts because nobody wants them until they need them. You talk about the the flooding at your home after Superstorm Sandy. How much of this was in your head? And tell us about the way these strategies were tested for you and by you. Oh, well, the, the five gifts kind of came to me um, during a period of an, an incredible stress. I mean, anybody who's gone through any kind of a loss where you're dealing with uh, insurance companies and um, banks and the government and uh, contractors and um, companies that uh, come in from outside and, and try to scam you, um, it, it became overwhelming. So I, I tried to follow my own advice. And I, I took a 48-hour break, and, and during that time, as I was uh, meditating, I heard um, an inner voice, which sometimes happens when we, when we get very, very still. And the inner voice whispered, uh, humility, patience, empathy, forgiveness, growth, and said that these were the five gifts that would help me and help me help others to get through the nightmare that we were going through. You are a psychotherapist. How much of your training do you think contributed to, to coming up with these five gifts? Well, I think that definitely, you know, I've I'd, I'd been um, in, in my second career. My first career was uh, in journalism as uh, working for CBS News for eight years. And I transitioned into psychotherapy because after 20 years working in newsrooms, I, I came to recognize that people whose lives were shattered by uh, acts of violence or disasters would need long-term support. So it was, uh, it was kind of a, a long road, but it was a logical transition for me uh, to become a psychotherapist, and that was in 1991. And it grew out of uh, about 20 years working in the news business.
So it's interesting, when you worked in the news business and you had to deal with these people in traumatic situations, what was that like for you? Was it difficult? Was it challenging? Did you draw out strength? Well, I, I think, you know, as you know, working in the news business, you, you, you become clinically kind of detached in that you have a, a, a professional job to do. And um, it wasn't until, I guess, about five, six years um, into my time at CBS that I became uh, much more empathetic. It was kind of, I think, an organic change because I'd had a baby, but I became much more sensitive to the idea that, you know, people who I was writing about or the images that I was putting, uh, that I was choosing to go up on, on screens that would be seen by millions of people, that those people were actually real people and uh, that they were going to need a lot of help and support to recover from uh, what they had just been through. So I think it, it was a series of uh, realizations sitting in cutting booths and sitting in newsrooms. When it comes to these these traits, these five gifts, how does one teach this to themselves? How difficult is it for someone to try to gain this ability to take these five things? Well, it's a really it's an interesting question because you know when we think about gifts, we think about um, iPads or um, you know new cell phones or you know gadgets or clothes, and uh, as I say, I call them the unbearable gifts because they're not really. Uh, part of our particular thinking in this culture. But when we look at other countries, uh, one way we can acquire the gifts, I think, is by learning how people in other countries have applied them in similar situations, whether it was the Rwanda genocide, whether it was the tsunami in Thailand, uh, whether it was September 11th, whether it was uh, serving um, as, a, as a soldier, as a Marine in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, how did these particular traits help other people, and how can we kind of adopt those stories into our own narratives so that they help us to kind of see things in a different perspective when we get overwhelmed? You mentioned 9-11. You worked with the children of some 9-11 victims. Tell us about that and your efforts to instill or try to help them instill th these gifts within themselves. You know, the uh, program was called the World Trade Center WTC Family Center, and it was part of South Nassau Community Hospital. Uh, we had a community center that was they were families who had uh, direct loss of somebody in their family, whether it was a, a spouse, a parent, uh, a sibling, um, even sometimes, you know, cousins and close friends and uh uh, others who had uh, had lost somebody could come in, and we had we had a number of programs. My program for teenagers was was designed to get them really to connect with each other. So I was I was really building the uh, empathy gift, gift more than others. Um, humility, patience, and empathy I think were the things that uh, that came up as we did a lot of activities together. We were together for about three baseball seasons. Um, baseball had a, had a very strong healing power because the older kids started to coach the younger kids because the younger kids' dads were no longer there to help them out with Little League and uh, baseball practice. So it, it was really a, wonderful to see this kind of natural growth of uh, humility and patience and empathy uh, among these kids as, as we went through those three years together. What was the experience like for you? 
Um, I, I love kids, and uh, my, my own kid had gone off to college, and I, I just think that being around them uh, was inspiring, seeing the friendships that they were developing with each other, which was really the core, I think, uh, purpose uh, from my perspective as to what the pro- what the program uh, for me was about was helping them to to build bridges so that they would be able to connect in the future if there were other events and they needed they needed to be with other people who could really get it so um, it was very exciting for me to be able to contribute to um, a process that uh, had been very difficult for them up until that point. Many of them had never even spoken about what happened on 9-11 until uh, we got the program underway. And then they started talking to each other, and that was really rewarding for me to see. Was there anything that you learned from dealing with these kids, be it about these five gifts or about anything else? Um well, you know, the one thing that, that struck me, and I um, actually mentioned it right after the Parkland shooting to um, a couple of the first responders, I'm, I'm on a debriefing team, and, um, and what, I, what I said was, you know, kids, will, kids are really resilient, and kids, after coming, coming out of a disaster, um, kids can really come together in very surprising ways, and um, they will, they, they're stronger than we know. And we can learn a lot from their strengths. And uh, I remember saying that, and the uh, Parkland movement um, hadn't hadn't really taken form yet. So we were just kind of starting to see those kids speaking out. Um, and of course, it's a different time, and it's a very different uh, situation, a different environment. But I I think that kids who have been through a catastrophic loss can uh, can really surprise us in the strength that they show, the, the empathy that they that kind of comes up naturally, that connects them to each other and bridges them to the rest of the world. And uh, I, I was very inspired by working with uh, the kids whose fathers were killed in the World Trade Center. Are children more resilient than adults, or if you're resilient as a child, you'll be resilient as an adult? I don't know that we can say that children are more resilient than adults. I mean, children have uh, fewer um, fewer ideologies, if you will. They have fewer belief systems uh, that that keep them looking at the world through only one you know one lens. I think the kids look at the world you know kind of more as a prism. It's a, a rainbow of opportunities, or it's a rainbow of oppression. Uh, depending on what their circumstances are. So things tend to be a little more, I think, black and white for kids. Um, And for um, adults, I think that we can learn from kids, certainly, about uh, uh, how to take down some of those beliefs about what the world should or shouldn't be and to kind of live in, and again, that's the gift of humility, is to live in a state of openness and um, acceptance that we really don't control very much in our lives. And I think that we, that gives us resilience, that, that understanding and that humility uh, can help us bounce back just as it helps kids bounce back. I want to ask you about resilience. What do you think? Are people born with it or they, do they learn it? Well, I think we all have the capacity for resilience, but it's definitely something that we model um, thinking about um, uh, an interview in the book with uh, somebody who grew up in England after World War II when they, they only got one cup of flour a month for rationing. But uh, people, if somebody was getting married or had a birthday, they would, they would make cardboard cakes 
um, children would, and they would they would see that you know maybe an aunt or a grandmother or a mother you know came up with the idea of the cardboard cake. So we model resilience. Uh, we can teach resilience. Uh, we can encourage resilience. But you know some people uh, have more of it. Some people kind of naturally uh, demonstrate it as kids. And I think from uh, what I'm hearing from some teachers out west where the campfires have just uh, finished, um, the kids, uh, they're, they're shaken, but uh, the, the, um, the kids are showing um, some remarkable um, resiliency attitudes, I would say, from, from what I've been able to hear. And, um, and some of them had uh, also been indirectly affected by the fires last year as well. So, um, again, you know, the resilience to come back to school, uh, the resilience to resume normal life, I mean, those are incredibly um, important skills, and uh, we, we see that very often in, in kids after a tragedy. When you look at the five gifts, these five traits, are they all created equal or some more important, and is it different for adults and for children? You know, that's that's a great question. Um, I would like to say that children probably have these gifts naturally, although uh, I think that forgiveness of, of all of the gifts is uh, the trickiest one. And I'll talk about that in, in a second, uh, because I'm not advocating that you have to forgive. In fact, I do say in the book, if, you, if this doesn't feel comfortable for you, then, then you don't need to read the chapter. They're gifts, you know, they're not regulations. But um, I think that uh, humility uh, is the foundation of all the other gifts because humility shifts us from saying, why me, to why not me. I mean, it had to happen. It had to happen to someone. Um, it happened to me. It's, you know, this, this is a horrible thing. My life is just, you know, I, I talk to people in California. They've lost everything. Uh, and I know what that, I certainly know what that feels like. But, um, you know, we, we do come through this even though it can take uh, a few years. And we do begin to regenerate and, and rebuild and grow. And humility is the foundation for all that. So if we really, you know, we really like were to look at one gift that um, you can build on, that's humility. Uh, patience is the gift that nobody wants. I mean, no one ever said, dear Santa, forget the iPad, bring me patience. You know, we're not a patient culture. Um, I'm a New Yorker. I come from a long line of easily frustrated people. Uh, it was very hard for me to write about patience. But patience is the gift that lets us, um, lets us uh, accept that maybe two years later, three years later, uh, we're still grieving or we're still wishing that we had uh, back the life that we had before or that we were who we were before. So uh, patience is also very important in helping us accept that the hurt may go on longer than we think it should. Uh, forgiveness, uh, I always tell people to step into the word forgiving instead of forgiveness. And forgiveness isn't a light switch. It's more like a dial or a moving spectrum. When we are, when we are in a state of forgiving, we can begin to forgive ourselves for not having been able to prevent that event. And I think that that's the number one uh, principle of forgiveness, that we need to be forgiving of ourselves because we're all flawed, we're all imperfect, and we're all works in progress. Um, and growth, again, if we change it to growing, 
um, if we're alive, we're growing, and we're going to be growing as a result of this experience. Um, some people can say um, they they may grow in a more positive direction. Some people may grow into a more guarded position. Um, some people may grow into a more vigilant uh, kind of a character. But we are growing. We will we will change. We will develop new systems of coping. We will develop new beliefs. Um, and, and new ways of navigating life because of these, uh, because of the experience or experiences that basically shattered life as we knew it. So we spoke a little bit about resilience. You write about resilience in the book, and you write about gratitude. How do these two fit in with the other five? Uh, resilience, I think, is an outcome. In other words, with the with the practice, I guess, with with. Um, incorporating um, more of the kind of five gifts uh, thinking into how you handle crisis or how you handle stress, um, I think that you will become more resilient. And I think that that's really, really important. And I'm sorry, the second part of your question? Gratitude. Gratitude. Um, I think that when we have the five gifts, we are grateful. We're grateful for the experience because it, 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 it deepens us. Um, psychologically and spiritually, we, we discover that we're really stronger than we thought we were. And that's something that I'm uh, constantly saying to people who I have the honor to work with is that you're really stronger than you know. And I think that when you begin to experience the strength that you have and the resiliency, the ability to bounce back, that gratitude comes in naturally. However, very often, people, when they're really going through a very hard time, they uh, they had a fire in their house, um, their partner has cancer, you know, the pet dies, then they fall and they have an accident, the, the insurance company is giving them a hard time. This is people, you know, everyday people, millions of people go through experiences like this um, every day. And at those moments uh, when when everything uh, seems to be uh, coming against you, if you will, one one crisis after another. Uh, it's it's really important not to feel guilty if you're not grateful in that moment. It's normal not to be grateful, uh, and it's it's normal to be angry sometimes when you feel helpless. Uh, gratitude, you know, comes in its own time, and I think with the uh, with the five gifts, uh, gratitude becomes another outcome along with resiliency. For people who have these gifts, how does it help them, and how does it set them apart from those people who don't? Well, I think, you know, myself, I, I consider myself a beginner um, in working with these five gifts, and I know that uh, when I think about um, how they've helped me, one of the things that uh, I often say is that, the, you know, the only difference between myself and say a million other people whose homes were damaged by Superstorm Sandy, the, the only difference between me and them is, is nothing. And I'm, I'm just another person who went through a disaster, and there were millions of us in this country. So I think that, you know, in, in, in my own life, I think that the five gifts has, has helped me um, have more compassion. Um, it's helped me. Sometimes I, I feel, you know, in this work, that um, it's like it's like trying to empty what the Buddhists call an ocean of sorrow with a teaspoon, and um, so the five gifts are um, they they kind of open up uh, a whole range of ways in which we can connect with each other. 
So I think one of the things that I see from people who are really um, trying to integrate the five gifts into their thinking is is a kind of deeper appreciation for uh, empathy, especially, and uh, being able to uh, walk in someone else's shoes. When you look back uh, post-Sandy and what you faced in your life, how long did it take for you to regain your equilibrium and how how much of an impact did these five gifts have on that? Well, I don't, I don't know that I've regained my equilibrium. Um, I think that uh, for for me and uh, I think most people I know, Sandy was, uh, you know, we call it an imprint. You know, it was a very strong, it was like a little time stamp, you know, in your own personal history, if you will. So you think of life, you know, some people say before 9-11, after 9-11, and then there was Sandy, and Sandy was definitely, you know, a marker uh, that uh, defined how life was before and and how life has been since. Um, I talk about three elephants in the room very often when uh, people have, it's a couple of years after a disaster, and those are the uh, the loss of control, uh, the loss of safety, and the loss of identity. So, you know, the event itself makes us aware that, you know, we were helpless to prevent it, and there's a feeling of loss of control. Uh, The loss of safety are the feelings of vulnerability, uh, say, during hurricane season, where you go, "Uh uh-oh, you know, what if it happens again? And then the loss of identity is remembering things about your life before, who you were before, um, you know, what what your, uh, your sense of safety in the world. And I think uh, for myself, I'm, I'm more grounded. Uh, I think I'm much more pragmatic as a result of having gone through it. Um, it did take me, I think, about uh, four to five years before it stopped dominating my my thinking and uh, and a lot of a lot of the decisions that I had to make about my own life and future. So I'd say three to five years. So with that said, what did writing the book do for you, and what do you hope it does for other people who read um, well, it, obviously? Um, as I said, writing the book, I guess, is another way to uh, to take that teaspoon and uh, try offer somebody a way to hopefully come to terms with uh, a deeply sorrowful event or some kind of a major hit or major loss, and to give people um, skills um, the beginning of the book, I talk about emotional first aid. These are very quick uh, tools and tactics, if you will, that you can use that can help take the edge off being overwhelmed. Um, they can help clear your mind. They can help you to feel uh, more centered literally in seconds. I mean, I've developed these after 30 years of working in the field, and I've shared them with people in Parkland and people in California after the fires and uh, people, um, and certainly my own community after after Superstorm Sandy, and they work really well. And there are a bunch of them at the beginning of the book. Um, we look at how first responders prepare mentally and, and how they, they try to process or the structure of the process that they use to metabolize or literally digest uh, events that are very disturbing. Uh, It's my hope that the book will give people permission to know that if it's two years after disaster, if it's three years after disaster, your heart's going to hurt for as long as it takes to heal, and there's no real timetable. Uh, But there is, in this book, a kind of roadmap 
especially leading up to the first anniversary, and how you can work with the five gifts along the way so that you, you can actually look back at who you were or how you were thinking, how you were feeling a few months earlier and know that you've, you've actually made some, um, you've actually gotten some results in terms of feeling better within yourself. I don't want to say that you that you're a better person because you're the same person, but maybe you've acquired some thoughts or some skills or some new ideas or uh, a first aid technique that helps you to be calmer and clearer. The book is The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength When Disaster Strikes. The author is Dr. Lori Nadell. Dr. Nadell, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Pete. And that does it for us this week. Remember, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. Next time, it's our second annual holiday show, where we'll feature some books perfect for gifting and hopefully spread some holiday cheer.